Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. All right, today we're talking about Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End, which is uh, one of his signature novels. He's written a whole bunch of novels. I'm a great fan of his, but this particular novel really helps focus on one of the ideas that he's sort of known for, and that is the idea that artificial intelligence can grow to a point where it becomes self-aware, that there's some type of critical mass of creative capability within artificial intelligence through a variety of means, and that when that happens, the artificial intelligence changes the nature of human life, period. So, we've seen this in movies. You've all seen the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where that happened. What is that? Terminator. Terminator and its various sequels where you have artificial life suddenly becoming self-aware and then it, you know, in some situations it starts fighting for its, its existence. Well, so this rainbow's end is there. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about the details. We're going to cover the first half of the novel today and we'll cover the second half on Wednesday. However, some things I want to point out. Now, I'm not a big fan of Wikipedia under many circumstances. Anything that's controversial, you just can't rely on Wikipedia for. But, in fact, in political circles, it's notorious. Uh, even Wikipedia has and had situations where they were banning IPs, anyone from posting on IPs, from IPs in any congressional office, because they would be doing flame wars, or actually they, they sometimes call them, um, well, they're wars where they revert, revert wars, where they, they would post things opposed to the opposition candidates that's running against their congressperson, and then the congressperson staff would come in and fix it and put up nice things, and then the, the other person staff would come in and revert it back to the old way and to go back and forth. And eventually, they just had to, you know, ban certain IPs coming from Congress. So anything that's controversial, whether it's scientific controversy or political controversy, Wikipedia is just a wreck. So, and, and you know, that does not take away from the fact that there's lots of good stuff on Wikipedia, but those are things that are not controversial. And so here we have an article here in Wikipedia on Werner Vinge's article, I mean, on Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End. And I'll be, I'll, let me be honest with you, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly, so I've not actually interacted with a lot of people who did pronounce it, so I'm not exactly sure. And I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. So, uh, anyway, well, let's, let's let that go. So, Rainbow's End is a sort of a signature moment for him because he focuses on something that he's written about and spoken about extensively that is covered in this book. And that is that idea, and it's covered in this basic Wikipedia concept here, Wikipedia article on the, the novel itself, and that is the growth of technology to the point where something actually happens. Okay? And this artificial technology so that the computers take over. And when it happens, you get something called a technological singularity. So, let's start with this idea of Rainbow's End. And now let's go to the Wikipedia article on technological singularity. Now that's actually a really nice article. It's actually very well, very well put together with a lot of thoughts tying it together. So I actually recommend this article on the idea of a technological singularity. Now what this is, let's read a little bit of it. The technological singularity, or simply the singularity, is a hypothetical moment in time when artificial intelligence will have progressed to the point that greater than human intelligence, radically changing civilization and perhaps human nature. So, because the capabilities of such an intelligence may be difficult for a human to comprehend, 
the technological singularity is often seen as an occurrence akin to a, gravi- a gravitational singularity beyond which the future course of human history is unpredictable or even unfathomable. So you can actually see that actually happening if you talk to your parents about what kind of cell phones they were using. They'll tell you about the early Nokias and they'll tell you about the early Motorola Razors and things like that. Now here's my cell phone. When you start talking about the modern smartphones, this is like way better, way better than the supercomputers back just a few decades ago. So, for example, my dissertation, which was a really great dissertation, used an IBM supercomputer at the time, and it used an enormous amount of that computer's time. They were, you know, and it was, and the size of that supercomputer was 276K. Did everyone get that? 276K. Uh, it wasn't even a megabyte. And you you talk about these smartphones in terms of gigabytes. So just in terms of space and in terms of speed, when I was at teaching at UCLA, I got a phone call from the computer services department and said, Courtney, we're moving into your office. <laughs> I knew the guys well, so I said, okay, what, what's going on? What do you mean you're moving into my office? Well, we were just told from the provost that we have to uh, serve our clientele at the university in proportion to who is using it. So we had to do a survey and figure out, you know, using computer users, who is using our computers. And we found out that you were using two-thirds of the entire computer resources of all of UCLA, ten departments for all teaching and all research uh, for the last year. <laughs> just me. I was, so we're moving into your office by orders of the provost. It was just a joke, of course. They didn't, move, they didn't have the office move in. But the point is, I was a major user. And I was, you know, I was actually um, um, given sort of uh, official notice, official notice in a uh, IBM supercomputing competition uh, using supercomputers here at, at Emory. So I'm used to like big mainframe computers. None of the big the big super ones for which I have been recognized internationally for using. None of them were as smart or as cool as this cell phone. Do you get the idea? I mean, my award-winning stuff was never done on something that was as great as a cell phone. So what's happening is that these technological advances, and and by the way, these computers started out to be the size of library basements. And then they became the size of these tables. And then they became the size of desktops. And then they became the size of your laptops. And now they're the size of these telephones. Okay, so we're talking just a few years. Now, you are sort of looking at this and thinking that this is sort of ancient history and it's sort of silly and why is Courtney going into this? You don't have to, you don't have to wait many years before you guys are dinosaurs. I swear, in four years, the kids who are going to be sitting in your seats right now are going to be looking at you as old grandparents. And the technology that you think is so cool They're going to have Google Glass as sort of ancient stuff for them. I mean, they're going to have all the types of things you see in Rainbow's End as sort of common, and you're still going to be dealing with laptops and stuff. (laughs) The point is, it's going to radically transfer things. And I know this because I deal with graduate students, and graduate students are like four to ten years older than you, and they're way behind the technological curve that you guys are at. Do you get the idea? Just a few years ago, they were sitting in your seats. And you have to sort of, I'm a high-tech person, so I had to sort of prod them to to use this technology in the classroom. In fact, once a year, they have me come in and talk to graduate students about getting them to use technology in the classroom, because I'm such a big person in that, in that realm. So the point is, rapid advance is exactly what they were talking about, this technological singularity. And it actually grows and grows and grows. And one of the reasons that it grows is because the actual physical 
devices have changed because of what they call Moore's Law. Now, Moore's Law is not... Moore is actually a guy, and there's a picture of him, and he thought of this. Now, this is not considered like a universal law, like the law of gravity, but it works in the sense that people, technology companies, actually use it to predict the rate at which the development is going on so that they can predict the obsolescence of their machines and need new machines and so on. So it's actually used. So let's look at Moore's Law. Moore's Law is the observation, so it's not really a universal law, it's more of an observation, that over history of, com- of over, over the history of computing hardware, the number of transistors on integrated circuits doubles approximately every two years. Does that make sense? That's like humongous. That means two years from now, when you folks and when you guys are juniors, and I always use guys generically, men and women, two years when you guys are juniors, the number of transistors on your cell phones is going to be twice what it is today. That's big. That's huge. That means your current cell phones, as smart as they are, are idiots compared to what's going to happen when you're when you're just two years down the line. Four years, it's humongous. All right. So the law is named after the Intel co-founder, Gordon um, Moore, who described the trend in a 1965 paper. His prediction has proven to be accurate, in part because the law is now used in the semiconductor industry to guide long-term planning and to set targets for research and development. So what you have is the computer. Oh, by the way, they actually think Moore's law is going to be changing, that there's sort of a... Like all things, it doesn't just keep on going. It levels off. But they're talking about it leveling off after the year 2000. Uh, some people think 2013. Some people think 2015. And what they mean by leveling off is that you still see growth, but the second derivative changes. So you still have a positive first derivative in terms of change. You're going to have more transistors. But the second derivative, which is the change of the change, becomes negative. So you have an inflection point. And basically what that means is it's still growing, but not growing quite as fast. So it might take three years when that happens for the number of transistors to double. But like, who's messing with you? I mean, who's caring? Two years, three years, what the heck? It's just a few years and the number of transistors is doubling and that computer can do a whole bunch more. Now, if you look at Apple's new iPhone, their new iPhone, one of the three versions that's out that's available here, is a 64-bit machine. Now, that's a full-fledged 64-bit mainframe as far as computing is concerned. So, most iPhone, most phones are 32-bit, but this is a 64-bit computing machine that's 64-bit that's just, you know, amazing. And so, that's going to be common. And it figures everybody's phones are going to be 64-bit, and they're all going to have, you know, way more transistors and so on. So this is what this technological singularity is all about. So the thing about Rainbow's N with Werner Vinge is that this is not really something that's not going to happen in your life. This is real. So this is science fiction at its best when you actually see something that is not like on a distant galaxy far away or something you're trying to imagine. This is Werner Vinge trying to describe to you the types of things that actually will happen. And since you're all young, what are you? Most of you are 18, right? Yeah. 18, 19. This is your lifetime type stuff. You're going to see this one. So we'll see as you grow older if he's correct in the types of things that actually happen. All right, so let's... Can we turn on the light now? And let's actually start talking about the novel itself. We can get rid of this. So I wanted to show you this on the computer so you get the idea. It's a very short Rainbow's End description here. Uh, actually, the listing of the characters is useful because the beginning of Rainbow's End gets a little bit confusing. If you notice the beginning of Rainbow's End, it was sort of hard to keep track of these characters. Uh, the, the plot development and the character development didn't really go so smoothly in the first half. I'm not criticizing Werner, but I'm just saying that the first half is a little bit, maybe the first 40% of the novel. It's sort of hard to keep get track of what's actually going on. So this Wikipedia article here that actually lists the, the main characters and who they are is actually sort of useful in reading that. 
It doesn't tell the whole plot, of course, but it does give you some basic idea. And then it does connect up with the idea of technological singularity. It links to it. And reading, now that's a long article on technological singularity. See how long it is? I mean, that's a big deal. And notice the idea of technological singularity. You see Werner Vinge in there. I mean, he's a huge person in the whole concept of technological singularity. So there's a, there's a few people who are really who are really big at it, and he's Kurzweil is one, uh, Werner Vinge is, is another. So it's uh, and some people refer to stuff by uh, John von Neumann in the context of the singularity issue. So you know you're you're talking about Vinge being one of the primary proponents of the singularity concept. And then when you compare it with Moore's Law and say, wow, it really is happening, and, and, and the Intel companies, or actually the, the computer companies, the chip companies, are basing their long-term planning on that, then you realize this is not just Arnold Schwarzenegger running around with uh, the Terminator series. This is something that's very real. Okay, so let's get rid of the... Let's get rid of the computer now and just start talking about the novel. All right, so let me actually disconnect the computer and you can throw this over there, okay? Thanks a lot. Okay, so let me shut the computer down and ask you, now that we sort of had the sort of basic idea of what we're dealing with, with this novel, Rainbow's End. What are your initial thoughts about it? I, of course, have lots of things that I could say about it, but I'd like to get your initial impressions and your also thoughts about particular aspects that you see that are potent, especially political. What's sort of relevant in the political side of things, in the political side of an interpretation of this novel? You're going home... After this semester, your parents will ask you, what did you do in school? What did you learn? What are you going to tell them about how this novel related to politics? <coughs> Again, we'll only talk about the first half of the novel. This is open. You can say anything at all. All right, I'll start. All right, Jack. Um, one of the things that I noticed in the novel that I think will happen um, in real life eventually as modern medicine gets better and better and, like, um, people that become older and older and still live and become healthier, um, I think that a struggle that they will undergo is reimmersing themselves in technology that was not really in their lifetimes before, and they have to, like, go to school and learn that stuff over again. Like, Robert Gu and those other professors that were, like, renowned um, engineers at their time, they're, like, worse than high school students now when they're, in those, when they're in those classes at the start. And then they feel, like, uh, worthless at, for, like, a certain time because they're, like, I, I just, one of the, one of the, for, sorry, one of the engineers was like, her last name is Xian or something, and she says, I designed this, and I have no idea what this does anymore. So I think that's going to be um, something that's going to have to be addressed. Okay, so you're actually talking about a couple things here that are interesting. One of the issues with technological singularity is that it affects medicine. And that you're talking of the idea about medicine and age-related things. Now, typically when we think about age-related think we think about body parts, replacing body parts or fixing <coughs> body parts. This book actually goes in a different direction <coughs> than simply body part replacing. It talks about completely... Well, you tell me. When we have Robert Gu, what is the... Am I pronouncing that correctly? Does anybody... Okay. Um, I mean, what would that... 
what kind of what kind of medical change has he experienced? They cured his Alzheimer's. They cured his Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. But what else? Was it yes, Alzheimer's. Good. But what else? Was it just that his brain was back? What else was back? His body is in like peak condition again. Peak condition. He looks like he was when he was what? Uh, 17, 18, 17, 18, 25. Around 25. <laughs> That's what people say. Okay, around 25. So the point is, he looks younger. He doesn't look antediluvian. Does everyone know what the word antediluvian means? That means before the flood, like Noah's Ark. Like he doesn't look like he's an old guy. Okay? So he looks really young. Now the trouble is, what happens when you have an old mind in a young body? It's a weird experience. So but so they're not talking about body part replacement. We're talking they're talking about complete cell regeneration all along. Now we don't have to go there. There are some issues that are not covered in this medical orientation of technological singularity. Some, see, let me just give you an overview in two minutes only or less of the problems that seem to me to be unrealistic in this. The body is a, is a carbon-based burning machine. It burns oxygen. That's why you stay warm. That's where the heat comes from. You take food in, it combines that food with oxygen, and it literally burns it. So what happens is you burn up the body, and the whole thing literally burns out like a car that you just use so often. Now, unlike a car, you can keep on replacing parts with a car, but with a at the engine, typically those engines, you, engi you end up replacing every little piece on those engines eventually because it just burns out. However, if you take a car and you burn it with a, a leaner mixture, so it doesn't have as much gunk, it, you burn it lean, and you don't rev it and rush it all the time, that thing can last, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles and years and years and years and years. I think there was a guy who had a Ford truck who went a million miles in the same engine or something like that. He just didn't rev it up all the time. So if you compare that to a body, there are two types of people that won't last all that long. First is people who consume a lot of food, very heavy people, because they're processing so much. It's, you're just burning, burning, burning the body out. And people who run marathons, <laughs> literally, you know, they're healthy throughout, but the body is being worn out at the same time. So the idea is that that wearing out... Now, there actually is a lot of research on that, uh, ways to sort of slow down the aging process. And it works with all lower-level organisms, like worms, grubs, bugs, rats, things like that. And they're in the middle of controversies now on whether it works with primates, and that is caloric restriction. And the idea of caloric restriction is that you lower the, the burn rate by literally restricting the amount of calories that the body has. Go ahead. I actually watched a documentary about this last year. Um, there was a man who just through calorie restriction lived until he was like 90, um, and the documentary was basically an interview of him, and he walking marathons, I and mean, he couldn't run them, but at 90, it's amazing that he could yeah. walk them at all. They're still doing research on that. But the issue is with caloric restriction, you simply don't burn out the body as quickly. But there are other issues that have not been fully addressed. For example, they had a recent study with caloric restriction that was absolutely idiotic. They got funding. I don't know how they got funding. They should probably get their money back from it. But the point is they had, they had two sets of monkeys, a dieting and a non-dieting. But what they did was they minimally supplemented, like the minimal daily adult requirement of vitamins for the dieting monkeys, 
and they super-supplemented the undieting monkeys, and then they slightly dieted the, the undieting monkeys. That was not supposed to be in the plan. The thing is that the dieting monkeys had to be super-supplemented, not minimally supplemented, and that the undieting monkeys had to have no supplementation but all the food they could possibly eat, equivalent to what we have. And that was just not in the experimental design. They just messed it up. So the reason super-supplementation is necessary is because the intestines are not efficient. They're not 100% efficient. So if you send in through the intestines the minimum daily adult requirement, you're starving the person because there's just not enough food going through there. And so they have to be super-supplemented so that they get more than they actually need because there's only a certain percentage that's going to be pulled out. And that the, the other monkeys that are control monkeys have to be no supplementation, but infinite amount of food. No, and so they're, they're doing you know, studies about that, but they take a long time. The point being, however, that what happens with them is that the metabolism lowers and they literally get cooler. In some cases, they have genetically altered mice where they genetically alter it so it's not a matter of food, amount of food that they give them, but actually a genetic modification that simply lowers the metabolism rate and what happens is these genetically altered monkeys live forever. I mean, genetically altered rats live forever, but they're cold. I mean, they're literally cold all the time. And the only way they survive is by making a friend with a fat rat <laughs> and literally just hugging the fat rat their whole lives. And sort of. And then when that fat rat dies, they have to buy another one. So some of the they have to get another friend. So the point is that in order to get enough heat, otherwise they just freeze. So the point is that some things are not covered in Werner Vinge's novel about sort of how they get this long life. But he does cover the idea that it's not a matter of part replacement. It's a matter of complete rejuvenation in some way. Whether it's chemical, whether it's biological, whether it's, whether it's using viruses to reinsert, you know, broken genes or whatever. Nonetheless, so the reason I brought the, the caloric restriction idea up is that people are starting to think about ways, even now, that the aging process will slow down. And by the way, according to the monkey, according to the rats and the grubs and the worms and the beetles and things like that, they double the age. And when the animals die, they just collapse and they do autopsies on them. And there's nothing wrong with them. They just stop living. <laughs> they just, they don't, whereas the 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 rats and the worms and the grubs that can eat as much as they want, um, they clearly have problems that are specific organ-related. They have a liver failure, they have cancers here, they have something. So it's, it, you know, it's a wide-ranging and very controversial piece of research, and probably it's going to be in your lifetime or maybe your kid's lifetime when it's finally all sorted out. I'm not arguing one way or the other from it. I'm just saying that it is an area of research, so the stuff that they're talking about <coughs> in terms of changing the level of longevity, is actually something they're working on. And in fact, you can actually see it's not just a technological innovation with computers, but medical innovation. So people will be conceivable and you know living lives that are 120. And according to the 120 years old, according to the actual research, these long-living organisms that have lowered their metabolism not by choice, but because the experimenters forced it on them, they stay robust to the end. Their sex life is okay till the end. They're running around okay till the end. They find the cheese at the end of the maze, just like the whippersnappers do, the young ones. <coughs> and then they just sort of stop. Whereas the fully fed ones, the ones who are you know, just able to eat whatever they want, they have a slow degradation. So when they become, say, in human-like terms, 60 years old, you can tell the difference. They're not thinking as quickly. They're not running as quickly. They're not doing. And when they become 70, you know, they're ready for they're ready for the Brenton Woods retirement home uh, if they aren't there already. And when they become 80, you're just watching the clock tick. So the point is that things are already sort of on the board for understanding this aging process. But Werner Vinge is talking about something more, not just body replacement, but on a molecular level, getting things back to where they started. Again, I'm just pointing out that this is not all science fiction. They're actually working on these ideas now. And in your lifetime, it will be 
stuff that will actually happen. So let's let's continue. So that was great you brought that up with regard to the medical stuff. So the idea of Robert Gu actually living a long time and actually having to you know learn things all over again. That's not all that far-fetched. They're already talking about the possibility that humans could be robust at 120 years old once they understand the, the total scope of things. All right, let's 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 talk about some other ideas then, especially, you know, the technological... Go ahead. Something I noticed was um, that's something that my sister-in-law who works for Yahoo has already observed <clears throat> is the monopolization and privatization of information. Of what? Uh, information. So, like, when they're with the library, when Huerta is trying to compress everything and basically own all human information, that's something that's already kind of scary. That's great. Now, actually, that's a really important point because that is um, bumping into two movements on the planet right now. One is the manner, what is the information of open source? get everything out so it can be seen by everybody. And the other is a matter of <clears throat> nothing's free. Who's going to own it? And somebody's got to pay for this. So why don't you actually describe in the novel what actually happens in the novel that to actually <clears throat> crunch, uh, chop up the library? <laughs> um, well, this guy, Huerta, is trying to digitize all the books. So the idea is you take pictures or scan in every page of every book in the library and then you shred all the books so no one yeah, can... Actually, they've got a new way of doing that. The best way of doing it is that's the old technology. Yeah. The, the book here is actually talking about a new technology. The old way is you actually take a picture of each page and then get rid of the book. What's the technology they're talking about here? Doesn't it do it at the same time that it shreds? It, yeah, it shreds and then takes pictures of the shreds yeah, and then in a computerized puts it all back yeah. together. So, so no one else can get to the information because the, 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 sh the shredding anymore. is part of the picture taking process and it's part of the destruction process yeah. as well. And it starts with the US, US the University of San Diego. <laughs> yeah, UC not, San Diego. Yeah, it starts with that library. But it's um, his plan is to do that with all like university libraries so that the information only exists in a digital format. Yeah. Which means that if since it's his movement and his like plan, I think it's six months they said for like six straight months he'll be the the sole owner of all that information and it's like all the information that humanity will have compiled up to that point, which is a lot. Owning information that you didn't create. In fact, the only reason you own it is because you were at the shredder. And being the singular owner. And being a... The singular owner. It's a monopoly, too. A monopoly so it's not... Owner. It's, like, problematic on two levels. How does this relate to the issue of patents? <clears throat> Actually, let me give you more of a hint. How does this relate to the issue of genetic patents? <clears throat> Anybody know? I don't even know that was a thing. Was it? I don't even know you could patent genetics. Well, companies like Monsanto, Monsanto that are like developing genetically modified crops are patenting those specific crops. Okay, like the sequences. Yeah. Well, it's even worse than that. And, the, and they're generally those crops will like take over normal crops, and then that's like they own that, and they'll make them so that they can't. Reproduce like the plants can't reproduce, so you have to buy the seeds from them every single year. So 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 but it's even worse uh, than that. No, go ahead. First, go ahead. Uh, like companies are now buying like human, like they find a gene, so they have the, they're claiming they have the right to that gene. Say it again. Companies are buying genes, uh, like a or like they discover a gene, so then they have the right to that gene. So they're claiming that they have. The now right are they to buying it. the genes? Or not? Not buying. I'm gonna say uh, when they discover it, they claim they have the right to it. They simply find it. They identify yeah. it. They do yeah. the gene sequencing, discover a gene. Go ahead, Najak. Oh, so it's like so. I was gonna um, the crops that like you have to buy from the companies um, that like don't grow on themselves. That's like exactly what's happening. That okay. what happened in the right. th Those are two ends of a different story. The the gene story and the crop story, but it's still ownership. 
But the basic idea is with the the Supreme Court recognized a certain case. It was a decision that was made. It was a close decision. It was it was not it was not like a lopsided decision. But they allowed a company to file a patent for a gene that it discovered. Now, it didn't discover what that gene does. It just discovered that it existed. And they have these machines that do gene sequencing, so they said, I've identified this thing. Okay? Were you going to say something? Oh, no. Okay. They were going to they identify something, and then they patent it. They own it. Now, the issue is, did they create that gene? No. They didn't create it. Similarly, in the book, when you're shredding the books and then putting it in digital format and then owning the huge library, and did they create And making a profit. And making a profit. Did they, <coughs> did they create that knowledge? No, but they own it because they have, the, they have the library at that point. They have the source. They have the monopolistic source. So this idea of owning something that you didn't cr- create simply because you either categorize it, you, 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 know, you put a sequencer on it, you, you found it, or you shredded it, this is not far-fetched. That's real. Were you going to say something else? No. Okay, so that's actually, you know, this whole idea of owning information because you're the last person that had access to it before it was shredded. That's a, go ahead. Uh, I remember back uh, Google was dealing with some copyright issues when they started scanning yes. books um, without the permission of the author, I believe. Now, that was another thing. The argument in favor of that was, hey, information should be open to people. Let's just scan every book in existence and... Then the same issue came about where authors were saying, you're asking us to give you our books. And Google was saying, well, you know, we're doing this for free. <laughs> and, and some of the authors were saying, well, of course, you're stealing for free. I mean, that's what... But, and so there was an argument and there was a big debate about that. And so uh, the authors who thought of it as theft were very upset with the argument that it was a free service being given for distribution. And it's never really been resolved. And there's always going to be that tension when the technology exists for distribution of digital information. Who, well, who owns the distribution channels? Do they then own the content as well? And so it's always a, a question. So all of these issues are actually coming, sort of coming into this novel. Okay, so... We've covered the idea of medical singularity, the idea of having people, in this case, brought back to functionality. But if you can be bringing someone back to functionality, the same argument can be made, can you prevent them from aging in the first place So, at, at such a rapid rate? So um, what else is there in this novel that you see that sort of relevant to sort of political thinking or, or whatever. What about the you gotta believe me? What's that? What about it? Yeah, what about it? The what about you got to believe me thing. The uh, U G the Y G B M. It's that. Let me see if I can actually find a page here where it talks about it. The Y. Page fourteen. What is that? Go ahead. It's page 14. I On page 14, you find uh, an example of it? Yes. Okay. Um, they're talking about the threat associated with... Actually, let me, let me read from the, the bottom of page 13, okay? The bottom of page 13. But now consider, 
the weapons test, there was some type of a weapons test that they discovered. It was a computer weapons test. The weapons test was a masterpiece of cloaking. We were incredibly lucky to notice it. The test was a work of patience and professionalism at the level of a great power. Great powers have their own inertia and bureaucratic caution. Field testing must, necess must necessarily be done in the outside world, but they do not run their weapons development in labs they do not own. Kaiko made a sound of faraway chimes. She's one of the intelligence people involved in the trying to figure out what's, how to contain this thing. But why would a great power plot a revolution and plague delivery? What profit is there in that? Gunberg, um, another one of the three people involved in trying to contain this, Yes, such destruction, Gunberg nodded, yes, such destruction would make sense for a cult, but not a, not for a superpower. At first, my conclusion was a nightmare without logic, but my analysts have been over this again and again. They've concluded that the honeyed nugget symptom, that was a computer message that was transferred out in a commercial that was eventually aimed at mind control, that the honey nugget symptom was not simply a stand-in for lethal disease. In fact, it was an essential feature of the test. This enemy is aiming at something greater than instant biowarfare strikes. This enemy is close to having an effective YGBM technology. Kaiko was completely silent. Even her crystals lost their mobility. YGBM. That was a bit of science fiction jargon from the turn of the century. You've got to believe me. YGBM. That is, mind control. Weak social forms of YGBM drove all human history. For more than a hundred years, the goal of irresistible persuasion had been a topic of academic study. For 30 years, it had been a credible technological goal. And for, and for 10, some version had been feasible in well-controlled laboratory settings. Now, to give you an idea, one of the greatest ways to get these types of things operational is to make the public believe, nah, they wouldn't do that. By saying, nah, they wouldn't do that, you're giving them permission to do that. That means you're not going to check because you don't believe. Now, in terms of this stuff, since the very first days of television, this has been a problem. In the very first days of television, when they had cathode ray type tubes, you know, boxy televisions, you probably see your grandparents or parents still have them. Maybe a few of them still. Maybe a few of you still have them in your homes when you go home. But they're not the flat panel TVs, but you know the the big heavy ones. Well, during the early days when they didn't have cable, but they just had the networks: ABC, CBS, NBC. Some of the commercial companies. Some of the actually started with soap. Some of the advertising companies said. Let's get people to buy soap. So what they did is for a frame, you have something coming out in the tube, you know, in uh, 30 frames a second. One or two frames right before the right before the commercial would be a black screen with white letters, big letters saying "Buy soap." Now it turned out that older people couldn't see that, but it would register. It would register in their mind. They would be conditioned to go out and buy soap. And then the commercial for soap, whatever that soap was that they were advertising, would come on right after that. And they were already predisposed to buying soap. The trouble was that young kids, young kids, like younger than you, could see it. <laughs> now, the older folks couldn't see it, but the young kids said, hey, they just flashed buy soap in front of it. Didn't you see it, Dad? What are you talking about, Junior? Anyway, there was congressional investigation, and sure enough, they found out that the advertising agencies were putting these subliminal messages, really crude, just a few frames, buy soap, right before the soap commercials. And then they passed a law to make that type of thing illegal. And then it became a, sort of a, a game to try to put these subliminal messages into advertising in more clever ways that couldn't be so easily found. So it, it actually is illegal to flash 
buy soap for a couple frames in front of the soap commercial. It's The law was passed. that can't be done anymore. But there are clever ways to put this type of subliminal stuff into it. But what I am pointing out is that it is in human nature to do this. This is not a crazy thing that you should say. They wouldn't do that. Since the very beginning of television, they have been attempting to do that very blatantly. And to the point they had to pass laws to stop it from happening. So if you add layer upon layer of technology and capability, you don't have to say, is it possible that somebody would dare do that? We know for a fact they will do it. And you are giving them permission to do that as soon as you say, nah, they wouldn't do that, then they know you're not going to check. And they will do it. And they demonstrated the, that was one of the first things they did. As soon as television was operational, boom, buy soap. Subliminally impressed on the mind. It was one of the first things they did. It wasn't like later discovered, maybe we'll try that three or four decades later. It was like one of the first things they tried. So, this idea of a you-gotta-believe-me type of a weapon, where they're using the tube, where they're using television or some type of method of, of transmission to insert things into the mind, that is actually something that's been around for quite a while. Now, we're going to get into this really deep when we start looking at some of the other novels that we're going to be talking about. I mean, this is really big in Neuromancer by William Gibson, and when you talk about Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash and things like that, those are like huge elements because in that case, you're not just looking at a commercial, which is what this honey golden nugget thing had. In that case, people are learning to immerse themselves into a reality. And you're not much watching a computer screen, <clears throat> but you're getting the 3D reality sound. It's like you're there, you're surrounded by it. That's the next thing. So the kids that are going to be sitting in your seats four years from now are going to be all into that. They're going to be, you know, what are the, what is the, what's the most popular YouTube star on YouTube today? I think you mentioned his name. Yeah, once. we talked um, PewDiePie. Yeah. Oh, the gamer. Pardon me. Without the gaming one. The gamer one. Gamers are really big, and what they basically do on YouTube, what they basically do, is they insert themselves into the game, and follow it through, and and actually make comments. So you actually see the game going on. What would happen at this point? What would happen at that point? And then you see the guy, the gamer, in a small box on the top, making responses like, whoa, look at that, that's scary, well, what? You know, and he's fiddling with it to go in. Well, he's trying to imagine, he's trying to get you to imagine what it would be like to be in that game at that spot, and he's reacting to it. That's all going to change in just a few years' time, where the whole surrounds sound type of environment, visual, once the goggles come out and they completely immerse you into the whole thing, they will get access to the to the innermost parts of the brain by completely surrounding you with this artificial environment. And you're seeing this in many novels now, but the point is, it's no longer something you just see on a commercial. Now it's something that you're going to be literally getting into. And of course, with some science fiction, like romance and so on, you jack in, meaning there's a hardwire connection. And we saw that in The Matrix. Did everyone see that? in the? You've all seen The Matrix, right? And you see the people like Neo and so on, and Morpheus, they jack in. The wires go right into the brain, and they are there. So the first thing is, the technologies, you're looking at a screen. And right away, the, the manufacturers tried to get subliminal stuff in. What happens when they get you surrounded by the whole experience where you feel like you're there, all the senses. And then the next step is the jacking in, where you are literally neuron to neuron in that environment. I mean, that stuff is actually is, is obviously coming. And what happens? The issue is viruses can be spread. I'm not talking biological viruses, but informational viruses that set up neural pathways to do certain things. So the bi-soap thing was really crude. But what we have common is really sophisticated. And the response, nah, they wouldn't do that. 
if there's anything that you should believe is, yes, they will do that. So this whole idea about a YGBM technology, you got to believe me. The whole word, you got to believe me, what is that in reference to? It's like, it's in response to, nah, they wouldn't do that. you got to believe me, they did it. That's why it's called the YGBM. They did it. you got to believe me. Meaning, the response is, nah, they wouldn't do that. That's the natural response. A YGBM is, trust me, they did it. All right. So this type of technology is very interesting, and you're talking about something that's, you know, that's very real. Okay, so what else did we see in this novel that's interesting? We're talking about technological singularities, where these things become possible. We're talking about YGBM technology. We're talking about um, information, monopoly information control. What else are we talking about? This, this novel is relatively recent, so I think that a lot of what included in the novel is are statements about the status of our relationship with technology now. So, you know, the lenses that everyone's wearing that changes what they see on a daily basis, I think is more about the author telling us that we are no longer experiencing the world around us and are living our life through technology. We're living our life through lenses. He just makes it a literal analogy in the novel. You know, you're raising a good point. Um, let's take that a little bit further. Let's look at some other science fiction. You're the first person to raise that idea of changing the reality that you see. Remember that in the novel, the actual real world that they saw was actually somewhat drab. Why spend a lot of money buying a house and furnishing a condo that looks really great <clears throat> if you can just have a drab one, switch a switch and your glasses, and you're living in a palace. I mean, if it looks like a palace and feels like a palace, why does it have to be a palace? So a lot of the stuff that you're seeing here is people having artificial environments that look really great when in react, the reality is that it looks like a piece of trash. <clears throat> what happened in Battlestar Galactica? Anyone remember that series? Anyone watch that series, Battlestar Galactica? How many people have seen Battlestar Galactica? Not the very first one, but the the repeat, the the, the newer one that came out on Sci-Fi Channel. So pilot episode. Yeah, oh, you're not real Battlestar Galactica. Okay, well. The basic theme behind Battlestar Galactica is that there was a technological singularity of the type that you had, and you had humans who had built essentially robots, and these robots became eventually self-aware and had that they, they they passed that level of technological singularity, and like in the Terminator, they said, "I'm not going to do this anymore," and they started a war and they started to fight and then one of the they kept on then there was a there was that was war number one and then there was sort of the second phase of the war there was a long pause sort of a peace sort of armistice or whatever but what happened was that there was a new type of well these robot type things were called cylons and there was a new type of Cylon, which was a merger between the metal robots and humans. So they were Cylons in the sense of being robots, but they were biological entities that were programmed. And one of the things that was unique about these human Cylons versus the, the metal Cylons is that they had an ability to project. So they were walking around in metal ships with drab metal walls, but as far as they were concerned, they were walking through paradise. I mean, they, everything was great. Whatever they wanted to see is what they actually saw. So we're starting to talk about a technology where it's not just you're immersing yourself and exposing yourself to a virus, but also 
you're drawn to that technology because it makes, it literally creates a reality for you that is better, nicer, crueler, niftier than the, than the reality that's around you. Why should you face your drab one-room studio apartment when at a flick of a switch you're living in a palace? Why should you actually have to walk down the hall of you know an old carpeted hall in an apartment building when you could be walking down a hallway of a grand of, of, of a grand building that's like in the White House, for example, down the White House, a red with red carpeted in the whole thing, meaning the walls are still going to be there, so you're not going to bump into them because the reality will keep all those physical things in place, but they'll change the the way they look. So we're starting to see this with Google Glass where you're getting information coming into you. The next step, of course, is to take that information, process it, and feed it back to you so that the... And, and that will happen as soon as the processing power gets a little bigger. See, the Google Glass that they're now marketing pretty soon will be a way of getting cameras and recording simply by glasses you're wearing and getting information given to you, like little computer screens in the corner of the of your eye so you can get access to it. But that's basically getting information that's out there into the glass and then giving you minimal information back. What happens when you want to get more information back, when the bandwidth becomes a little bit bigger, where you're not only getting the video stuff coming in, telling you where the walls are, where the chairs are, where the desks are, but then processing it, changing the colors, adding cushioning, put flowers on the side, you know, photoshopping it, <laughs> and then putting that back into you. Why give you reality when it can be enhanced reality in terms of what you see? So Google Glass is the first step of that process. Add processing power according to Moore's Law. The transistors will be available. They will be available. And that whole thing becomes sort of possible. So I took, Max, I took what you started and sort of added that other element to it. So we actually see another, another thing. Okay, so what else, especially anything in the last nine minutes that we have, we're talking about these sort of elements that actually have a touch on reality. And what I really want to do in the second class on this subject is really drill on the politics of the novel. But I really wanted to cover sort of the essential elements of this technological singularity verse. Go ahead. Young Master, uh, I know you have something to say. I know you will have something to say in a sure. few minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay, so what else? Who's Alfred? And the novel. He's the guy that created the, um, the you gotta believe me, early you gotta believe me. Let's talk about Alfred. He's yeah, he's like a double agent kind of, because he's working. He's the guy that works. What country first of all? Germany. India. 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 Did you say? Yes, <laughs> India. Go ahead. <laughs> he um. He was the guy that like put that test to use, and then he was also contacted to help contain some like the thing that he already created. So he's making it look like he's trying to help them stop some enigma enigmatic entity, but it's actually him that they're trying to stop. Well, this so is very interesting. First of all, he's in he's in Indian intelligence, so he's in the intelligence business. He has access to all of them computer stuff. He's also <coughs> running the UCSD lab to get this this virus, this computer virus to work and doing the test. His he's a bit shocked that his 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 invention actually um, was discovered. And he just happens because he was in intelligence to begin with, he was able to position himself among the three top people to try to contain it, and the other two don't even know that he's the one who did it in the first place. Now, how does the 
you got to believe me concept or the nah they wouldn't do that concept develop or fit into this he's in intelligence to begin with he has access to the information access to the physical hardware access to the labs projectile what are we really saying all right i'm going to guess that um, the message that Werner is trying to say is that the people at the top can do whatever they want to the people, to everyone else. Especially. Uh, yes, but would this be President Obama who would be doing something like this? Uh, it'd be the intelligence agencies. The people who have the ability, the people who are there. And if there's one thing about intelligence agencies is you're not allowed to know what they're doing. That's why they are intelligence agencies. Their job is to get information and control things, things stopping them from doing whatever they want, is you saying, nah, they wouldn't do that. So the point is that a YGBM, you got to believe me, weapon, is actually something someone who is rogue in an intelligence agency is potentially possible, capable of doing. They have access to funds that are unaccounted for. They have access to money. They have access to labs. Now, what is it that motivates Alfred? Is it a sinister plot by a world power to control the world? What is it that motivates him? He's trying to save the world. What's that? He's trying to save the world. He he's thinks trying, he's trying to save the world. He's trying to save the world. And say more about that. Uh, well, he thinks that just like how the other people that are coming to him to try and stop his plan, that someone's going to come up with basically the end of the world. Like humanity's going to come up with a way to destroy itself sooner rather than later. So he looks at the problems of humanity and says, obviously humanity is going to kill itself. Yeah. And he's got to save it. Yeah. Now, is that so far-fetched to believe that somebody could think that? No. A lot of... A lot of well, just plain old fiction, but a lot of science fiction, too, centers around the idea that one person or one small group of people can, like, change the course of history. That's, like, the whole idea of the Foundation Trilogy, too. So here we come, Alfred marching in, in an intelligence area, with access, money, and the ability to say hey guys, you know, and they also control things secretly, meaning they don't tell the left hand what the right hand's doing. So it would be very hard for somebody else to sort of piece it all together. So they come in with the ability to sort of orchestrate such a thing. So all you need is somebody in the right place with the authority and with the ability to keep things secret to want to do it. That's not so far-fetched. That somebody could say, now, if you you know, in the novel, he's a bit, he's a bit, he's a bit loose. I mean, he's he's not okay. <laughs> he's, he's he's got this messiah complex. But when he thinks that he's going to control, when he's going to save the world, how does he think that you got to believe me? Weapon is going to save the world. What does a weapon do, and why does he think it will save the world? And what is Werner Vinge saying about the potential for intelligence agencies in particular to view the world? How do they view the world? Well, you already mentioned how does Alfred view the world. He thinks that humanity is nuts, suicidal, and going to kill itself. And how many years does he think it'll take? Anyone remember? About a hundred. So he says sometime in the near future is going to happen. And he's going to have to stop it. Now what is this weapon that he's trying to, de to develop supposed to do to stop it so that he can save humanity? What is the weapon supposed to do? Remember, it was embedded inside a commercial. It's supposed to enact mind control, basically. That's exactly right. It's a mind control. Meaning, 
The problem with humanity is that they think screwed up. Individuals left to themselves will run amok and kill themselves. And the only way to do that is to control what they're thinking. Give me some historical examples of people who try to do that. This is not an isolated thought. We try to control thinking? Mm-hmm. As a means of making the world better as they saw it. There was the reign of terror under uh, Robespierre. The reign of terror under Robespierre. That was the time when everybody's heads was rolling down the street, being chopped off, the aristocrats. Go ahead. Stalin with Maxim Gorky's Russian Writers Union. Absolutely. The control of information under Stalin. Go ahead. Um, Mao Zedong with the 100 schools of thought, gathered all the intellectuals and killed them all. Exactly. Killing off the intellectuals and forcing people to memorize the little red book. These thoughts and only these thoughts are acceptable. What else? Give me another one. The biggest one in all of human history. Hitler? Yeah, Hitler and the Nazis. The whole Goebbels program of propaganda raised to a height. So this is not something that has a good intellectual history. But we have people repeatedly trying. And all it takes is someone who's got authority, in power, capability, and they're nuts upstairs. And what is the one way that you know it's going to happen when people say, nah. You remember, the people who let Hitler take over in Germany were the aristocrats themselves, the people who said, we'll be able to control him. They knew he was nuts to begin with, and they said, we'll be able to control him, don't worry, so we'll let him be chancellor, it'll be all right. What was the first thing that Hitler did? He killed those guys. So they couldn't challenge, and that was the beginning of the end. All right? So the idea is that people who can are also people who will. And that's why Werner Vinge calls the weapon a you-gotta-believe-me weapon. Because the response, the name of the weapon is, is in response to the human tendency to say, Nah, that can't happen. So the weapon is called, you got to believe me, weapon. All right, I want everybody to finish the novel. It's a great novel. And by the way, the second half is is faster and cooler and all the characters are fully developed and really great relative to the first half. So really get into this novel. There's tremendous things that can be said. I want you to all have passages that... Each one should have a passage that you want to talk about. <coughs> and I want you to also, if you can, have some issue that you think might relate to it. We've covered a whole bunch of issues today, but next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, is the time you want to talk about that because you're going to be writing about that over the weekend, all right? All right. Part two, the finishing up of Rainbows End on Wednesday. See you then. Be there, be square. <laughs>